All right, well, uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 this morning, uh, Exodus 3, 1 through 15. The title of the message is Rescue Story, and uh, I asked Hunter and the team to do that song uh, a couple of weeks ago, asking them if they could possibly work that one in, and uh, man, what a song. I don't know if you've heard it before, maybe that was your first time, but man, the whole thing is what God is doing to rescue uh, the guy who wrote it, Zach Williams, and how he rescues us. Um, from so many things. We're going to talk about that this morning. So Exodus 3, 1 through 15 is where we're going to be. I want to thank JP for reading that. And so we're going to look at a well-known rescue story in the book of Exodus this morning together, but probably not the rescue story that you're thinking of. Probably not the one you're most familiar, familiar with when you think about the book of Exodus. This morning, I want to look at the rescue story where God rescues the rescuer, where God rescues Moses from himself. And I want you to notice as we go through this account how fixated Moses is upon himself. He can't shake his shady past. He's got a terrible past. We'll talk about it. He can't shake it. He's got a paralyzing sense of inadequacy. Everything God calls him to do in this thing, he comes up with all kinds of reasons why he's not the man for the job. And there's a long list of excuses. He thinks, these things should disqualify me from what you're calling me to do here, God. But the way that God pulls him up out of that place is not how we might expect. And it's sometimes not how we pull each other up out of the pits that we fall into. Sometimes we fall into a pit and a friend comes along and says, man, you're, you're good. You got this. You can do it. But God does none of that. In fact, he pays almost no attention to Moses at all, as we're going to see in the text. And instead, he rescues Moses. He delivers the deliverer by revealing who he is to Moses. He says, here's my name. This is who I am. This is what I like. And so this is the rescue story of a nation. But the rescue story of this nation begins with God rescuing the rescuer. Before we jump in, there's a couple of things that we need to talk about to kind of set the uh, table for us to sit down and eat, if you will, in terms of Moses' story. I need to set it up for you, set the table a little bit. If you read Exodus 1 and 2, Moses was born under a wicked king in Egypt, and that king decreed that all the newborn Hebrew baby boys should be thrown into the Nile, okay? Now, this is not when Aaron, his older brother, three years older, was born, and of course, Miriam's a little older because she actually shows up in the story when Moses is rescued from the little mini ark there in the river, but he was apparently the one who was born after this decree was made. And so his mom makes a little ark with pitch, you know, just like Noah. Makes this little ark of reeds and puts baby Moses in there and floats him down the river. And it's not that she's abandoning her child. She kept him as long as she could, but she floats him down the river in hopes that he'll be discovered. And in God's sovereign control and his providence over all the details of this story, he ends up being discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, and little Miriam, if you use your biblical imagination, she pops up out of the bushes and says, I know a good Hebrew lady that can take care of the baby for you. You may go call her. Sure, go do that. And so she runs home and she gets Jochebed, who is Miriam, Aaron, and Moses' mother. And she says, listen, you're not going to believe this. Now, I'm giving you my translation, but you're, you're not going to believe this. They found him. And you're going to get paid to take care of your baby. Now, I've got five kids, and nobody's ever paid me to take care of any of my youngins. I pay for it, right? <clears throat> I'm just fun, having fun there. Moses spends his first 40 years in the highest house in the land. Powerful, 
privilege. He's got the world at his fingertips. And then one day around age 40, he gets tangled up in a bad spot and he sees an Egyptian beating one of his buddies, a fellow Hebrew. And he literally, he literally takes matters into his own hands. And when he takes matters into his own hands, he's gonna be driven out into the desert. It's not until he puts things back in God's hands that God leads him up out of that desert. That'll preach. That'll go with you this week. I don't know what you're wrestling out of God's hands, but you need to give it back to him. So he kills the Egyptian. The next day he goes out and this Hebrew guy confronts him and says, hey, what are you gonna do? You gonna kill me too? You gonna bury me in the sand like you did the Egyptian? And Moses realizes I'm gonna be on the evening news. I've gotta get out of here. So he takes off and so he is a murderer and now he is a fugitive from justice. He winds up in a desert region called Midian. He meets his wife. I'm I'm shrink wrapping the story for you here. He meets his wife, starts a family, settles down for the next 40 years of his life. He thinks maybe until he dies in basic obscurity. Moses essentially falls off of the radar. He disappears and he begins keeping his father-in-law's sheep. Now, during that time back in Egypt, things go from bad to worse for Israel. And they begin to desperately cry out to God, God, help us. We are, we are withering away. We're being beaten to death underneath of the oppression of Egypt. And they cried out to God for help. And I love what the scripture says to us. This is instructive for our hearts. When you're calling out to God, listen to this. It says, God heard, God saw, God knew about their affliction. He heard, he saw, and he knew. Some of you this morning came into this place and you're sitting in the midst of five or 600 people and you're thinking, nobody knows. He does. He knows, he sees, and he is drawing you to himself. Later on it says, he says, I've come down to deliver them. I'm getting involved. That brings us up to chapter three. And so what we're gonna talk about this morning as we walk through the story together, everything you're going to see is completely unexpected. I want you to pretend like I'm teaching this story to you and it's the first time you've ever heard of Moses. It's the first time you've ever heard of an Exodus or the book of Exodus. And I want you to picture what's going on and process it not through the eyes of somebody who's just used to the story, but listen to how unexpected everything is. Almost illogical that God would do the things that he does. God chooses a murderer to represent him. Like I passed a guy thumbing for a ride this morning. I don't know that guy's story, but I would say it's possible, maybe likely, he's not killed anybody. But I wasn't picking him up to put him in my car this morning, right? I've done that a couple times, but I try to be pretty picky. God picks a murderer to be his man. And this murderer is a fugitive from justice who is running away. He is a lowly shepherd in obscurity. He's apparently got a speech problem, at least at this point in his life. He has major self-confidence issues. And now he's 80 years old. And we're not talking about skaties. (laughs) He's 80. And you look at him and say, God, this is your man. This is who you've chosen to go represent You and stand in front of the most powerful man on the planet. God, what in the world are you doing? We're gonna look at it this morning. God's rescue and the rescuer. Verse one, the Hebrew text begins in a very matter-of-fact way, almost a mundane way. Those old, old cartoons where the narrator comes on and he says, now here is a sloth hanging in a tree. You remember those, some of you? I remember those when I was a kid. It's almost as if Moses, who's narrating his own story, says, here now is Moses shepherding his father-in-law's flock of sheep. 
It's just another day at the office, right? To us. But unbeknownst to Moses, God is drawing Moses to himself because he's going to repurpose and recalibrate his life and send him on a mission Moses never thought possible and never saw coming. At first glance, we might look at this and go, oh, wow, man, this is awesome. God meets us where we are. And that's, that's true, but I think what you see in this text here is God doesn't just meet him where he is. God is drawing him to himself. And your greatest need this morning, your greatest need this morning, I don't know what's going on in your life and your situation, but your greatest need this morning is for God to draw you into himself and you have a fresh sense of the power and the presence of Almighty God. That's what you need. God draws into himself so he could reveal his name and his nature to this, his chosen instrument. Also in verse one, you're gonna see Mount Horeb and then you hear it called Sinai. Don't let that throw you. It's essentially the same place. This is the mountain later where Moses receives the 10 commandments from God. Verses two through four, we see the action starting to build. An angel of the Lord appears. Now later, God's going to speak. Commentators kind of differ on, you know, we all know it's God calling him, but what's the angel doing and who's the angel? Not gonna get into that, but you can read about it later. An angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush that was engulfed in flames, but it was not consumed. In other words, this bush was burning up, but this bush was not burning down. This is what theologians call a theophany. Big word for you this morning on the screen, a theophany. Essentially, a theophany is this, an appearance of God in the Bible, many times the Old Testament, where God becomes tangible to our human senses. Like picture the condescension of a great, majestic, holy, almighty God that he is coming down into this scraggly thorn bush and revealing himself to man. He didn't have to do this. He could have left Moses to his own mistakes. And he reveals himself to Moses. And so Moses' curiosity gets the best of him. I put this in my notes. I don't have it in here this morning, but I just, I kind of got tickled when I thought about it. You know, we have a saying, curiosity did what to the cat? It killed the cat. Well, curiosity called this cat, right? <laughs> this guy gets called because he's curious. Why is this bush burning up? See, this happened frequently in this region, but this bush was not burning down. It was just burning up and it continued to burn. And so he goes over to have a look at this thing and a voice calls to him from the bush and calls him by his name. Now in scripture, fire is a common symbol for the presence of God. We see it all throughout. Actually, I'll give you just a couple of examples. In Exodus chapter 13, there is a pillar of what? Fire that is leading the Israelites on their journey. If you go to 1 Kings 19, what does Elijah call down? Or rather 18, what does he call down on Mount Carmel? Fire, and the fire licks up the water in the trench, the text says. It even overpowers the natural qualities of the water because it's a holy, purifying, perfect fire. In Acts chapter two, go to the New Testament. This is after Jesus, he's ascended, and now he is sending his spirit at Pentecost. The spirit is poured out in tongues as of what? Fire. But see, this fire is different. Something about this fire is different. It teaches us something about who God is, something about his nature, because most fires, if you don't tend to them, what happens to the fire after a little while? It goes out. If you leave it alone, if you don't put the right combination of wood in there, you don't give it the right amount of oxygen flowing in there to have some fuel, the fire goes out. But this fire, with no other fuel source other than itself, it just continues to burn. 
It just keeps burning. It's a supernatural phenomena. It never burns out, I think, to teach us that God's glory and God's power, his holiness are perfect, unfading, and eternal. The word glory means, kabod, means weightiness. And you sense the weightiness of God in this text and what's going on here. Later on, when he tells Moses his name, he tells him, I am who I am. When he gives him his name, his very name captures the idea that this burning bush is illustrating for us. The name, uh, I am who I am, Yahweh, how we would translate it or try to say it, means one who is self-existent and self-sufficient. So this little fire on the mountain, you know, this little fire right here at the foot of this mountain is self-existent, is self-sufficient because God doesn't need anything else outside of himself to make this thing happen. Matthew Henry, I love this quote. He says this, Moses saw more of God in the desert than he ever saw in Pharaoh's court. Moses saw more of God in a desert place than he ever saw in the highest house in the land. Think about where you are this morning and think about our prayers. When we wind up in a desert place, when we hit a rut, when we hit a snag, when we fall down and stumble, what most often do we pray? God, get me out of here. Moses spent 40 years preparing for this moment, but he had no idea what God was doing in preparing his heart, preparing his mind. Later, Moses says that God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, Hebrews 13. Verse five, the action's really starting to build here. God tells Moses, do not come any closer. Don't come any closer and take off your sandals, take off your shoes for the place where you are standing is what kind of ground, church? It's holy ground. Now, I've been to Israel a couple years ago. Pastor Scott just got back very recently. And, and, and there's some impressive sites, but there's also some spots, uh, well, a lot of places in Israel where you look and say, what's, what's holy about this little dry patch of dust, about this rocky little craggy area? What's holy about this ground? I'm gonna tell you what was holy about this ground. It's because God was there. The purifying, empowering presence of God made this little dry patch of dust holy. Think about what happens when Christ comes in to us. We're a wreck, aren't we? We're a dry little patch of dust. Why in the world would God send his spirit to inhabit us and to make us holy and sanctify us and prepare us for glory? It has nothing to do with us. It has all to do with God's presence. And God told him, this is critical, listen, do not come near. This is the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, okay? Do not come near. And scholars tell us this is the first time in scripture this is the first time in scripture that the word holy is used to describe God. I didn't know that. I learned that this week. This is the first time this word holy is attributed to God. Do you remember Isaiah chapter six when Isaiah has his vision of the king on his throne? Remember that? And the seraphim are flying around and what do they continually cry out in a threefold repetition? What do they say? Love, love, love. Peace, peace, peace. Joy, joy, joy. Now what do they cry? Holy. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. See, nowhere in the Bible is it repeated that God is, is something threefold times, but it says here he is holy, 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 because holiness, don't miss this church, holiness is central to who God is. 
And we need to approach him as such. I'm gonna deal with this a little bit later. I'm gonna get ahead of myself. But we need to understand what it means to be holy. You say, what does it mean when we call God holy? Well, it means he is separate. It means he is transcendent. He is exalted in loftiness. You say, well, those are all fine theological terms. Give me a peg I can hang my hat on. Because he's holy, here's what this means. There is an infinite distance. There is an infinite gap between God and every creature in his universe, and that includes us. There's a gap between us and him that separates us from his presence because unholy things cannot be in the presence of a holy God. That's why God told Moses, park it where you are. (laughs) Park it right there. Take off your shoes. I love what Tony Evans says here. I mean, he can turn a phrase like nobody else. Tony Evans says, he was standing on about a quarter inch of sandal sole. A quarter inch of sandal sole. But even in the presence of God, that is still too much. He says, take off your shoes. Verse six, when God reveals himself to Moses in this way, this bush, he calls out to him, he calls him by name. When he reveals himself to Moses, I want you to notice Moses' response. What does Moses do? He hides his face. He doesn't stand up and go, man, I've been waiting for you my whole life. Where you been, God? How'd you leave me in this place? He hides his face because this is too much for him to take in. He is overwhelmed. He takes God seriously. He is undone. It's the exact same thing that happens to Isaiah. He is undone. You remember Elijah, what he did on the mountain? When God showed himself in the earthquake and the windstorm and you remember all that and What did Elijah do? He took his cloak and he wraps his head up in his cloak because he can't stand to look. I love the story of Peter and Jesus in the boat, Luke chapter five, the miraculous catch. Jesus tells him to to fish a certain way and they, they bring so many fish into the boat that the boats are sinking, the nets are breaking. And what does Peter do? Does he get out his fillet knife and say, boys, we're going to work? No, what does Peter do? He hits his knees and he, he says, Jesus, depart from me. Depart, go away from me. Why would you tell Jesus to go away? Because he saw something in Jesus that completely unraveled who he was at his core. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. And he understood, I have no business sharing this spot with you right now, Jesus. Moses says the same thing, I can't bear to look. Verse seven, God says this, here it is. Listen, I have heard, I have seen, and I know the afflictions of my people. Now, what if he had to stop there and said, I've heard, I've seen, I know, and good luck working it out on your own. (laughs) We'd have been in a hot mess, right? What does he say? He says, I know, I've seen, I've heard, and I'm coming down. When my little child cries out in the middle of the night, what do I do? He'll work it out on his own. He's all right. I get up and I come down from my bed to step into where he is and take care as best I can of his trouble. He says, I've come to deliver you out of this place, but listen, not just there, I'm taking you to a place. 
Go read the epistles and what Paul says. He takes us from darkness into light. He takes us from serving Satan into serving the king of kings. We are delivered out of something and delivered to something. And that's what God is doing right here for Israel. Verse 10, God says the thing to him. I'm skipping down a little bit. God says the thing to Moses that he never wanted to hear again in his life. He says, come on, Moses. I'm sending you back to Egypt. I'm sending you back to the place you have spent most of your life, half of your life now running from, and you're gonna lead my people to freedom. I want you to get ready for Moses' response because you remember how big and bad he was. You remember how big and bad he was 40 years before that in Egypt, right? Y'all remember the movie Home Alone, Kevin McAllister? This is Moses in Egypt, right? (laughs) This is my house. I have to defend it. But there's also a scene in Home Alone where Kevin actually sees the burglars and he runs and jumps under the bed and this is Moses in the burning bush. This is him right there. And before we start pointing fingers at Moses and say, Moses, I thought you were a big bad man. I thought you were gonna take matters into your own hands. I thought you could handle it. Where you at, Moses? Let me, let me ask you a question. If God called you out of the place that you never wanted to be again and sent you face to face with the person you never wanted to see, are you gonna be holding the hairdryer or are you gonna be under the bed? You're jumping under the bed. I am too. And Moses is looking for the nearest bed that he can jump under and hide because he does not want to do this. See, sometimes God raises people up who don't want anything to do with the mission that God is calling to them. You remember Gideon, Judges chapter six? He's down in a hole and he's threshing his wheat. He's he's in a wine press taking care of wheat. He's not supposed to be doing that. Why? Because the Midianites would come in and raid everything they had and take the wheat and now they have no food. So he's down in a hole and he's throwing the, the wheat up into the air so that the chaff blows away and the heavier kernel falls to the ground. And he does not want to do this thing that God is calling him to do. And he comes up with the, God, I'm the the littlest man on this church staff. Why are you going to call me to preach? (laughs) That's what he said. God, I don't want to do this. Why are you calling me to this? Verse 11, Moses begins his list of excuses. You know what every single excuse begins with? The same letter. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. Every single excuse Moses is in the presence of a holy God and and, and yes, he's hiding his face, but he can't take his eyes off himself. He can't quit looking at himself and his own inadequacies. Look at verse 11. He says, who am I to do this thing? God, you've got the wrong guy. You knocked on the wrong door. Verse 13, he says, and suppose I go or if I go, I mean, how, how are you gonna look at God at a burning bush and say, if I choose to do this, God, This is your mission, should you choose to accept it? No. Moses doesn't understand what's going on here. If I go to Israel, listen, I don't even know what to say. What do I say if they ask me who you are? Now that's actually a really good question. Because if he's gonna go on God's authority, if he's God's ambassador to his people, he's got to be able to tell them something other than it was a really cool experience you guys had to have been there. (laughs) He has to look at them and say, the God of your fathers has sent me, the holy God, your God has sent me to you. He needs to know who God is. 
Later in chapter four, if you keep reading the story, Moses added again. He says, they're never gonna listen to me, God. He says, I'm not even a very good speaker. And I love what God says to him. It feels like something I would say to my kids. He says, I'm not even a very good speaker. And what does God say to Moses? Moses, who made your mouth? Who made the mouth and put it on a man? Who enables him to speak? Moses is totally missing it. Philip Ryken says this, this, mo- this mission never for one second depended on Moses' competence. It was entirely dependent on God's presence. Verse 14, God answers the question. He says, tell them that I am has sent me to you. Tell them I am who I am. He declares his name. Evan says he's the personal, all-powerful God who is responsible for everything that exists and he sovereignly directs all things to accomplish his kingdom purposes. And so if Moses needed assurance about following and obeying the one who was sending him, listen, he got exactly what he needed. God never looked at him and said, you're the man for the job. And and you've been shepherding for 40 years and you're gonna shepherd my people and you're gonna draw on that experience. It's gonna be great, Moses. Listen, you, you were raised in Egypt. You're Egyptian enough to confront Egypt, but you're Hebrew enough to care about your people. He never says any of those things. He calms Moses' fears by taking Moses' eyes off himself and putting his eyes on who he is. That's what we need this morning. We need to take our eyes off just the news. We need to take our eyes off of just our culture. We need to take our eyes off, off, off of the celebrities who are setting that culture. And we need to raise our eyes up towards heaven. You remember Jesus's words in the Great Commission, Matthew 28? What does he say? Behold, look, pay attention. He says, behold, I will be with you to the very end of the age. The word picture there is, I picture a pack of gum. It means to the last little part, you got 15 pieces of gum. It used to be 17, but I guess prices are going up and products are going down. 15 slices of gum. And to the last slice of gum, I will be with you. To the last part of it, he says, you're gonna go be my missionaries. You're gonna take my gospel. And here's why you're going to be successful because I am with you. That's what Jesus says. So when Moses can't see anything but himself, God has to get in the operating room and do a little vision correction surgery on his man so he can see clearly. He's gotta get his eyes off Moses and he's gotta get his eyes on his holiness and his power and his purpose. That's why God says in the last few verses, listen, you're going back to Pharaoh in my name. You're going in my strength. And in verse 12, he says, you're going with my future promise that you're going to win the game. You're coming back to this place. You're gonna worship and serve me on this mountain. God never rescues Moses by being Moses' cheerleader. Do you hear me? Like in the way we've turned the worship of God upside down in our hearts and our minds in this day, we think God is our cheerleader and he's supposed to rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, you can do it, you can do it. No, 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 no. We, we're, we're missing it completely. God rescues us from ourself, from sin and Satan by revealing who he is. And when we understand that, when that comes into the core of who we are and that floods our mind and our thinking and our heart, it leaves us changed forever. 
He rescues him by revealing his name and his nature. In the Gospels, Jesus does the very same thing. He confronts the the religious powers. He confronts the Pharisees. And he tells them who his name is. What does he say in the Gospel of John? I am. Ego, ami. I, I am. He's like he takes God's name tag. He peels it off and he puts it on his shirt. And he's the only one who can rightly wear it. And he shows them who he is. That he's the Messiah who's come down to deliver his people. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 This will be on the screen. Look at this. This is halfway through this little section, but just bear with me. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this language and think about the Exodus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. Remember the the plagues? By triumphing over them in him. God does it, Moses does it in God's power. All this is foreshadowing what Christ has done for us. He's rescued us from where we were. So I'm almost done. I've got a few minutes left, but let me fix you a little to-go plate this morning, a couple things for you to take with you and chew on. Think about this week. Number one is this. God calls people from every seat in this room. Do you hear me? every seat in this room. He calls people from all kinds of places, lowly places, obscure places, falling off the radar kind of places to raise them up and use them for his glory. He loves to do that. Sometimes we look at him and we say, but God, you remember what I did last week or last year or 10 years ago? You you can't use me. Listen, never despise what God would prize. First Corinthians chapter one, what does it say? He chose intentionally. God picked the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong. He chose the foolish to shame the wise so that no one can boast and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. God calls people from all kinds of places. So don't doubt that God might, can, would, is calling you today. Number two, when you open your Bible, When you come into worship, when you bow your head to pray around your table on a Tuesday night for supper, when you come before an almighty and holy God, let me ask you a question. What is your response? What's your response? How do you come into his presence? How did you come in here this morning? Do you stroll in flippantly, just casually, you know? Or do we hide our face? You don't have to hide your face. You can call on him as your father, but I think you understand what I'm saying. What's the attitude of your heart? I, I'm, I'm gonna be real honest with you. I, I, there's this new thing in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years I hear sometime, hey God, it's me. God knows it's you. He knew what you were gonna say before you opened your mouth. We don't have to say, hey God, it's me. I just wanna, I, I, just, I just come boldly before the throne. Bring your requests to him. When I was in college, there was a guy I thought who was super cool. His name was Brian. Great guy. I think he really loved the Lord. He stood out in a lot of ways, but he had this hat that he wore. And I thought it was super cool. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. Now, I didn't know enough back then to understand that homeboy and holy don't belong in the same sentence. I missed it. Oh man, he's cool. I don't know why he he wore that hat. I don't know what he meant. But listen, we're talking about a holy, majestic, glorious, almighty God. 
that some of the greatest people in scripture can't even bear to turn their face toward. He controls every molecule in the universe. We ought to never stroll into his presence and say, what's up, homeboy? I'm not being funny, I'm being serious. In our efforts to understand and relate to him, we ought to never try to minimize his holiness. You don't want a God that you can bring down to your level. You know why? Because that would make you God. Do you have any business being God? No. Jesus took on flesh, but he didn't do it so that we would be sloppy and lax in our attitudes towards him. Number three, self-awareness is a big deal today. Big, 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 big deal. Be self-aware. Know yourself, right? Self-aware, that's a buzzword. But what got Moses in the biggest trouble? Being hyper self-aware. I think it's okay to know who we are. I think it's okay to understand ourselves, to search out some of those things. But listen, we can spend so much time on who we are that we never take the time to get to know who God is. I think we're suffering from what I read this week from a sense of identity vertigo. If you ever have vertigo, you're laying on your back and the room's spinning and you don't know which way's up. Our heads are swimming, the room is spinning because we try to dethrone God and make him like one of us. And now we think that we're the highest authority on our bodies, on our sexuality, on when life begins and who should live and who should not. In the words of Reverend J.P. Poison, he said to me this week, we need to put down our phones and pick up our Bibles. Too much is coming in from the culture telling you who you are. You need to lift your eyes up to Christ as Hebrews tells us and let him tell us who we are. Last thing I wanna leave you with this morning is from verses seven and eight. God says of his people's afflictions, you've heard me say it twice now. I've heard, I've seen, and I know, and I've come down to deliver them out of slavery and into freedom. What did Jesus say in the gospel of Luke? I've come to seek and save the lost. I think Jesus would probably hang out with some people that we might be ashamed of. I think he would probably make friends with some people in some places that we would say, oh, I'd never go there. But that's exactly where he went. This whole burning bush account is a little microcosm. It's a little snow globe. You know, in a snow globe, there's like a whole world that exists right here inside of this big world. It's a little microcosm of the whole story of the Bible that God intervenes on behalf of his people to rescue helpless people of where they are and take them to where he is. That's the Bible. My philosophy professor in seminary asked his professor one day, he said, So my professor asked his professor, why do you believe that Christianity is the one true religion? You know what his professor said? He said, because in Christianity, it's the only one, out of all the other religions in the world, it's the only one where God saw fit to get dirty with me so I could be saved. That's it. All the rest of them have a mountain and they say, here's what you do to get up the mountain. But in Christianity, he says, I'm coming down the mountain. Because you can't get up it, but I'm taking you there. When the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, Jesus opened a way for man to come in. Remember what God told Moses to do in verse five? He said, take off your shoes and don't do what? Don't come near. Don't come in. Don't come any closer. That's the beginning of the Bible. You go all the way to the end in the book of Hebrews chapter four. 
And because of what Jesus has done, bearing the wrath, our sin on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, he says this, come on in, you're welcome in here. He says, you can bring your request to me at this throne of grace and mercy and find help in your time of need. He starts out saying, don't come in, but after Jesus, he says, come on in. Do we understand the great privilege that that is, that we get to come before a holy God not because of who good you, how good you are. Not because of what you've done. Nothing in you but because of who Jesus is. Jesus made a way for us to come in. So here's how I'm gonna close. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never, if you have no idea what it means to follow Jesus, I don't mean sit in these seats every week. If you don't know what it means to follow Jesus, if your heart has never been filled with his Holy Spirit, listen to me, today can be your rescue story. We sang that song intentionally. God rescues the rescuer. And before you can do anything in his name and his service, he has to rescue you. You say, well, how do I get rescued? You remember Peter when he was walking on the water and he went down, right? Jesus pulled out a gospel tract and said, now make sure you say everything just right on here. <laughs> and what'd he do? Peter reached up his hand because he understood, I'm going down and you're the only way I'm gonna live. All you have to do is turn from your sin. The biblical word is repent. Turn away from your sin. Reach out and call on God to rescue you and save you. You don't have to get the words right. Remember the thief on the cross? Remember me when you enter into paradise. He says, I remember. He said, you're gonna be with me this day. And you will be cleansed of your sin and adopted into his family. That's what you need. You say, well, I'm already there. You know what you need more of? You need another taste, a sense of the power and the presence of the God who delivers his people.